looking at my hair because I have a camera right in front of me and I see my gray hairs, which don't bother me. They they don't bother me. I don't care, you know, to like cover them up or whatever. But a few days ago, my mom's staying with me, as I was telling you a little while ago, and she's a big, she's a fan of like hair dyes and, you know, just doing all kinds of things to her hair, which whatever, that's who she is. But, and she was telling me, you should start dyeing your hair. And I was all, no, why? <laughs> why? But I thought that was an interesting thing for her to say to me because I think it has to do with like the generations and how she grew up. And that was like the expectation of older women, you know, back then when they were younger, back in the day, and they had to be all primped up all the time and like show, I guess, like show up to the world and the most, like the biggest facade sometimes. I, I don't know. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Do you see that with like maybe your own mom? Most of my hair is gray. Like half of like, the, the top part. On the top, all- right. <laughs> I, I started having gray hair since I was 13. I started dyeing my hair early because of that. Because of anxiety. Like, oh my God, it's just kind of this. Yeah. Crazy because you were 13. I was 13. I'm like, right. oh, what can I do? Right. Uh, so especially growing up in Peru, it, it was like, no, you have to cover it up. So I will try to flip my hair some type of way so they won't see it. But then during the pandemic, I, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to embrace it because this is really expensive. I spent so much money dyeing my hair and I feel very comfortable too, just wearing my glitter. That's good. Yeah, that's good. That's how I feel too. And I have two, I have two girls there's there's a lot happening. I know, like I'm, well, I'm totally making this such a complicating topic when it comes to hair dye. But there's a lot happening for me. One, it's like, okay, am I really bothered by it? No. So why would I want to cover it up, right? Two, like I don't want to do it just because people think I should, because it's kind of like what you do already when you're older. And then three, I feel like, well, I kind of want. I'm okay with my girls seeing me embrace aging. Right. In a society that kind of doesn't let you age because you yeah. feel discarded and like you're not good enough anymore. You're no good for anything. So, yeah, there's like a whole lot happening when it comes to me making the decision to not dye my hair. But <laughs> with that, with all that out of the way now, <laughs> how are you doing today? I'm doing really good. It's a very quiet between hot and cold morning. It's still really hot here in California. So You're in California. What part of California? In Riverside. It's, 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 it gets hot. Like yesterday, it was 105 degrees in, in October. And I'm like, what happened? Where's the what? Water? That's crazy even for us because I'm in El Paso, Texas. And it's hot. It's like a hot city. And mm-hmm. I think we've been hitting like, like the high 80s lately which i still feel like oh come on it's we should get a like at least hit the 70s by now but 105 and it's probably humid too right island empire and the riverside area it's dry oh okay that's how it is here if you don't mind like so that listeners people tuning in right now if you can tell us a little bit about yourself like are you originally from that area in california like, how did you end up there? Of course, yeah. Um, I was born and raised in Peru. Um, uh-huh. I was 18 years old. And because of my parents' economic status, you know, they wanted like a, a sueño americano. They decided to come here. 
So I was, I think I was forced <laughs> just to move here. I was 15, you know, you finish school in Peru when you're 16. So I was one year away from deciding where to go to university, which career path I'm going to take. So I felt like everything was taken away from me when I moved here. Because yeah. I have to start again, you know, and because I didn't speak English, people thought I wasn't competent or I didn't, I was not intelligent. I wasn't smart enough to take pre-algebra, pre-calculus and all these fancy courses. And I was like, what? I was trying to go to med school back in Peru. Like, what are you talking about? So it, it was very challenging growing up, uh, especially being from South America, came to California with very Mexican, Central America, primarily Latino. So yeah. it was a lot of culture shocking there, um, trying to adapt. Like, yeah, they spoke Spanish just like me, but we just were not the same. Right. Our culture, uh, the way we speak. So it was very challenging. It took me a few years to, to um, learn English. I would go to school, uh, high school, and then I would go after school. And I, I would tell my teacher back then that I was 18. Mm-hmm. So we go to school at nine. So I, I was able to pick up the language really quick. I graduated. I didn't know what to do with my life. I was undocumented back then. My mom was trying to fix our status because my parents divorced right in the middle that they came here, they went their own. So I got a letter of deportation because my mom was trying to to fix the status and I panicked. I was 20 years old by then. So I was panicking a lot. I didn't know what to do. And I decided to move to Puerto Rico. So I moved to Puerto Rico because I was like, they speak Spanish. I thought it's Puerto Rico, it's not a US, you know. I'm close to home. If anything, you can come visit me because my mom had a status. I didn't. So somehow, miracle happens. I was able to fix my papers. My mom's partner back then was very uh, abusive, mentally, financially abusive. So it, it took a lot of a lot of things to to um, fix our documentation. But my brother enlisted to the Marines. So back then, I thought, oh, he made a really good choice. You know, but then that's a whole different story. And then you said, nope. What? <laughs> yeah. I moved to Puerto Rico. Um, I, I, I was able to go to pre-med school there for a few years, for, for a year. And then I got pregnant. So the whole shame, you know, being a single mom. I went back to California. I would say I already had my status change. And I started all over again. So having my baby at 22, even though I was an adult, I felt like it was a child having a child because how I was treated and how shameful it was for my parents. I didn't talk about it. I don't have any pictures about my pregnancy. Maybe I have one picture, I believe, because mm. it was very, very discouraged for me to talk about it. Like I didn't enjoy my pregnancy. So that was difficult. But then that's how I started taking classes in, in psychology and understanding mental health because I was very depressed through my whole and, but I had to work. I have to be very high functioning. So people didn't see it, didn't notice anything. You know, I became a very angry person. So the more I learned about mental health with my psychology courses, I decided to become a licensed therapist. So moving forward, 2016, I was finally able to graduate because ha- going to school and having a child at the same time was very difficult, very challenging. I remember having two or three jobs going to school full-time, barely sleeping four or five hours, trying to have my life because I was young. I wanted right. to 
I wanted to enjoy life. So it was very challenging, but with my mom's support, um, my family support, I, I was able to graduate. I got my license 2016. I got married in that time frame. Uh, I got married. I became licensed and I've been working with my community back then because I remember um, back in 2012, I started working with LAPD and doing the domestic violence phone calls. So I will go and help survivors and victims of domestic violence. And that really brought me down to my reality, like the reality of my community, you know? Yeah. This second dream, it's not happening. Because I will go to houses in LA where one bedroom apartment, three different families were living there, a lot of poverty, uh, no access to resources, very afraid because of their status. So they didn't know their rights. They thought they have no rights. And that really got me into start working with uh, undocumented communities. However, I never disclosed I was formerly undocumented because of the shame, you know? Right. Before, I, I graduated high school here back 2004. We were calling Yes, which now, you know what? It's so funny how language matters, right? Because it was such a common thing to use. We used it, right? And now, now when I see anybody using, especially when they attach the word alien right next to it, it like sends, ugh, it like upsets me. It's like a whole different you know, a whole lot of emotions happening, all negative, of course, because I'm like, oh, that's like, that's how we were referring to us. And language matters. The way you speak about yourself and the way you let others speak about you has so much to do also with how you feel, how how competent you feel, you know, and how how worthy you feel. And being undocumented, it's an identity. But being illegal, it, it definitely brings a lot of shame. That it's not a not good one. Uh-huh. It, yeah. It's the worst. Yeah. So, because undocumented, I think, puts you as... A human being who's just going through a situation. It's in a situation versus everything else. You have no hope. There's nothing for you here. Yes. Yeah. That's what really got me working with my community, my undocumented community. And that's what I do now. Uh, I have a group practice. Um, my group practice, we're all BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color, clinicians. And with that, you know, I, I decided I wanted to do more. So that's what got me to my DSW program right now where I'm, I'm working, I'm getting my doctoral social work, and I'm learning a lot. Um, and again, working with my community and adding that extra layers of those intersections, you know, being undocumented, being Latino, Latinx, living in poverty, how it really adds and impacts your identity. It, it makes me humble. There's a lot of privilege that I have, even though I'm a person of color, yeah. that I need to have every time I talk to my community, every time I start and invite someone to work with me in the therapy room. I imagine that's an important component of of you being a good therapist, right? Like to to it's like that baseline of like I'm no better than you, like I'm I'm you know what I mean? Like I can see you and and let's work together. Now, I do know that you work with and correct me if I'm wrong, but do you also work um with uh, people who have H or HIV positive or have HIV. Is yeah. that what I read correctly? Okay, because I didn't want to like so butcher I, that. <laughs> work uh, with the small population of undocumented Latinx individuals that are living with HIV. 
I had the great opportunity to work at True Evolution, which is a nonprofit at Riverside that they work with uh, individuals with HIV. But because I speak Spanish, most of my clients were Latinx with HIV and a big, a small percentage that they felt comfortable enough, they shared that they were undocumented. So that really, again, opened a different layer and lens of how to see things. Yeah. How much they're struggling. That's what got me into a part of doing my BSW work, you know, um, which is work, how they navigate the healthcare system. Because unfortunately, being undocumented, not speaking the language, and you have your own beliefs of what medical care providers look like, you don't go and No. And then also, also with the small group of people that you work with, add in there this stigma of, oh my gosh, you're living with HIV. Obviously, that's a bigger block for them to even try to seek help. Latinx community, they don't understand the difference between HIV and AIDS. Well, they have AIDS and it's contagious and you don't talk to them and and you isolate them from their community. Yes. It, they live isolated, you know, because the family doesn't understand. Like, no, let me give you the psychoeducation. Having HIV, you can still live longer. You can have a family. You can do your work. There's so many things that you can do, you know, yeah. about getting the right resources, getting the right medication. But that's something that we don't, people that are undocumented, Latinx specifically, they don't have. You yeah. Know, we know here uh, in the United States, it's like 1.1 million immigrants, Latinos, Latinx, but then we don't know how many of them are undocumented living with HIV because they don't talk about it. Yeah. Specific numbers. But we know that every year when they're doing the numbers about HIV, a lot of Latinx individuals continue testing positive. You know, we're Mm. right after African Americans. Mm. So even though here in California there's help, there's healthcare system created to help them, there's still a gap. There's emptiness that we don't know what is it that we're missing, that we're not able to invite this community to talk about HIV, to break the stigma, to get tested. Yeah. Prevention, you know. And again, the stigma of HIV is, well, you're either gay or you're a sex worker. You know, you're not having a... You're you're dirty. Like, I don't even know how that, you know what I mean? Like... But that's kind of like the terms they use. Your life. Yeah. Right. So you're living in sin. Right. So all the religious right. pieces, it, it really creates a lot of barriers for people to talk about. And I think that that's probably what creates that gap. It's a lot of little things because just culturally speaking, our parents, I think maybe I'm starting to see it more in, in this generation and some parents like my age from my generation, there's more openness when you talk about sexuality and, and safe sex and safe practices, but that's still not necessarily something that's very common within our community, much less the undocumented community, right? Because they are much more isolated, which means they stick to what they know and they bring all these practices from, you know, back home, which means taboo. It's all taboo. You don't talk about it. You don't talk about it. You know, so that's it's it's a lot of little things that just creates this really wide gap that prevents them from educating themselves, 
feeling like you can, there is life after having a diagnosis of this sort, and then also getting the help that you need in order to continue thriving, you know, despite your diagnosis. Thank you for saying that. You can definitely be HIV positive and thrive. Yeah. Others that are living the best of their life, they're and you can have a romantic partner even after that. Like you can, you can fall in love, and yeah. But I, I just, I just feel like the shame that comes with it, the misinformation, the lack of access to resources. It doesn't allow a person to see beyond that, you know. And so, what you're doing is like it probably feels, and and I don't know if I'm right, but it probably feels like I'm never gonna get like people to really open up or really understand it. But I think that's how you break barriers. Definitely. Um, it's, it, there's a lot of challenges because when we think about HIV as of the Latinx community, we think about living in sin and being part of the LGBT community, which is, again, a negative thing for the Latinx. Yeah. You know, religiously, like Catholic church, Christian church, they don't accept it. So it's a lot of barriers for me to build our mm -hmm. report for my clients or people that I meet to feel comfortable about it. And it's also upsetting because there are resources and because of ignorance, not of only our communities, but of the healthcare system and how it was built to fail all of us, you know, because they open their chest and say, no, but we're giving money to here and over there in this community. So I'm like, yeah, you're giving the money, but how are you really utilizing these funds? Yeah. How are you getting into the communities that they need? You know, because California, we have the farmers, workers, communities. Uh, we have yeah, a lot of indigenous communities here that they don't even speak Spanish. Yeah. They speak language and we're not getting to them. It really gets me upset the more I learn about it. But mm -hmm. it also makes me to know there must be something that we can do. Right. Like now I know this and it pissed me off, but how can I break it down? <laughs> like, I'm going to have a fit about it for a moment, but now I have to work to get it down. You know, it, it's funny because my, my, my husband just recently retired from the army. So when you said that your, your brother joined the Marines and you were like, at first, like, ah, oh, great. Cause everybody makes you think like, that's like one of the best, or it feels a lot of times, like it's one of the best choices for people yeah. from our community or under other underserved communities, right? Um, or underrepresented. But uh, it's so much trauma that, <laughs> that comes with that, right? And then during the time, like the last 20 years, where there was like an active war happening, like that was just, ugh, it was terrible. But anyway, um, he just recently retired. But one of the places that we were stationed in for a while when we still had young kids was in Washington State. And... I love the weather. I loved most of the people that I met because they, they're kind of used to dealing with like just the the quote unquote, the melting pot of, you know, cultures or whatever that they call it. So it's like they're used to dealing with people from different cultural backgrounds or whatever. So we all got along for the most part. But talking about healthcare systems and how they fail you, I was turned away at least on two different occasions with a sick child from the ER in Washington state. And this was during like the N1H1 flu pandemic that was happening. Yeah. And I had a sick, I had a really, really sick two year old with it, you know, at the time and I was pregnant, I had it and we were very, very sick. 
And the nurse turned us away. And in the moment, I was so sick, Muriel, so sick that it was just like, oh, okay. Like, I took whatever reason she gave me as having to go home. But every time I look back on that and I remember it, it pisses me off. Because now I'm like, if I would have been in my right mind, <laughs> if I hadn't been as sick as a dog with pregnant with a, with a little one, you know, sick at home. I would have said something and it upsets me first. I'm mad at myself that I didn't say anything. And then I'm upset with this person because I didn't get to educate her or at least tell her off, you know, <laughs> whichever one came first. Um, but and now I'm thinking I came, I had some privilege according to the outside world in that moment, right? Because my husband being in the military, sometimes he does get a little bit more of a positive feedback by like, especially white Americans, right? Um, <laughs> and, but then it's, Yeah, but then I was like, that let me know it doesn't matter. That privilege only comes when they want to give it to you, when it's deserving for them, when it's convenient for them. Because in the moment that your child was sick, you were still a woman of color who they just didn't deem as important to be seen in such an urgent situation. And so now I can't even imagine people who really feel like we have absolutely zero rights in this country, like what they must feel, right? If yeah. I was angry and upset and frustrated and I almost felt humiliated, I feel humiliated. Every time I think about that, it like, oh, it pisses me off. It's like, oh my gosh, like these people who are also humans and have needs, but they just are told you don't have any rights here. Like yeah. you don't belong. A constantly reminder, right? Uh, unfortunately, after our last president, they normalize this type of comments, these behaviors. The violence, the insults. Aggression, oh. insult, everything. So it, it really made added another layer of, okay, now I'm gonna definitely not talk about my status, my health, I'm going to try to adapt and be white and act yeah. as, as I can so they don't look at me. So I'm one of the quote unquote good ones, right? Like so that I, I feel I look dot, like I'm, I, they can talk to me and I'll do whatever. Um, and, and that brings me to something that you mentioned earlier. And I thought it was really important that you you spoke about that, even if it was briefly, because so many people, when they think of immigrants, they think Mexican. They think, you know, like, because it's like right next door. So ev every immigrant documented or undocumented from this side of the world is Mexican. <laughs> and and that's, that's, I mean, obviously, like, that's inaccurate, of course. But it's also like, I guess I'm, I'm at fault for this as well. Because right now, in listening to your story, I'm like, you take away from so many others who not only are they having to now adapt in some sort of way to a white world, right, depending on where they're at, but then also now they have to adapt to the group that's most like them, that's most represented, so they can have some room in the conversation. Because I have friends who are from, and I think of one specifically right now from El Salvador, And he completely almost like forgets where his mother is from. 
because he's adapted so much to the Mexican cultures and traditions and foods and way of expressing himself. And you know what I mean? And that, that just makes me really sad that maybe without realizing it, people from the Mexican community just also don't even address that. And we don't encourage people from different countries to embrace their own you know, culture and traditions and language and, and everything that's beautiful about that. And so that was like, to me right now, like, oh my gosh, that's right. It's like an extra hurdle for anybody else that's not outside of the Mexican community. Yeah, which I love the food. I love the culture. I have a lot of friends that are Mexican, but it was definitely difficult. Yeah. You know, we have this group of people that we share the same language, but we don't share the same culture. Yeah. Latinos, Latinx, you know? So it was very difficult to navigate because it's a rejection where why students or students that speak English won't talk to you because there's a language barrier. And now you have a culture barrier with the students that speak the same language as you do. Yeah. You know, when you're 15, you just immigrated. You, you don't know what's happening. You're just trying to adapt. It, it takes time to really feel proud of who you are and, and yeah. really embrace identities you know and it's it's a it's a whole transition that i experienced growing up really feeling proud of being peruvian and my intersections and my identities and how i'm gonna carry them and how i'm gonna embrace them it yeah to get to that point Definitely. yeah i bet i bet yeah and i guess like us you know people in the mexican community we should like take steps to address that right like listen to because like Obviously, I'm sure you know, but there's like this whole um, situation with immigration that's happening right now where a lot of Venezuelans are coming, you know, here. And I've met a lot of them um, here on the border and heard their stories and whatnot. But I, I, I didn't I didn't do it out of like, oh, I'm going to be this like light that's gonna ask them about where they come from and like so they feel like they're sharing their culture I wasn't I I was just genuinely like genuinely curious about their story and what was happening and stuff but and having this conversation about like let's not add layers to what's already a block for them or like many many hurdles ahead like I, I feel like maybe in asking them like because I've asked them to share their food like and what is this and you know what is it made of or whatever just out of curiosity but I can see how proud they are when they start talking about the, this is what's called this is what we call an empanada this is what we call a pastelito and then usually it goes with this and it's so simple but it's like they're sharing a piece of them with you and they don't feel like they have to get even further lost right in this situation that they're going through so maybe that's one way it's that we could be more intentional about that and like asking about their traditions like during yeah. the holidays better you know yeah we're getting better i think for most white people it's just coming out of ignorance not just ignorance but their their own racism stereotyping that you put everyone in one box and that's it you know they don't have the intention to get to and yeah. that's part of the process of decolonization and, and trying to step away from the Western-like culture and just, again, embrace who we are and be comfortable and knowing that we deserve to be here. Yeah. You know, take over this space because it definitely belongs to us as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you're currently doing that. You're working with these communities. And then are you still working with the LAPD with uh, domestic violence cases? I ended, I ended that job back in 2015 mm -hmm. uh, 
it was a lot um, yeah. working with victims of domestic violence. There's a lot of child abuse cases, human trafficking, sexual assault, um, and me having my own trauma. It's when I decided, okay, I need to go to therapy now. Because <laughs> Let me get better first. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you, do, you, you do identify. You, you do see it like, wait, I had those same behaviors. I express myself the same way because of my own trauma. And yeah. you can see it, you know, abuelita and mom and daughter, because it, it was so accepted, the violence that the mujeres, they live in, in, in the Latinx community. You know, it's about yeah. what you do wrong that your husband can be. Well, it's stepping away from that narrative and to decide, like, no, this is not okay. We, we need to stop normalizing these behaviors. And yeah. the more I learned, like, I went to therapy, I work on myself, I, I process a lot of my own trauma, and I specialize working with people with history of trauma. Um, mm. I am a certified therapist. So most of my clients, regardless of their sexual orientation, identity, intersections, I work with people that have a long history of trauma. Obviously, people that are HIV positive, they have a history of trauma. So being able to work with them and, and do the job, it's very rewarding for me. I do therapy. I never feel superior than them. And, and that's a lot that they come with, you know, because they had a, a, a very wide therapist where they felt the authority and their room was Because of the prejudices, right? Of like, oh, I feel almost like, and I mean, and I'm probably like just not 100% correct, but I feel like sometimes from ignorance, sometimes from their own known, you know, biases, but not wanting to come out and say it. But the idea that we're better and we're much more, like we're smarter and we know more things. And so this doesn't happen to us. So let me be here and fix what's happening to you. Teach you the yeah. way instead of let you process it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that's the, that's the first thing that I talk to my clients about. It's like, just because I have a license, it doesn't mean shit. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? I don't know better than you. <laughs> Your life experience are your own experiences, and that's okay, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, we are in the same level. I'm not superior. You're not superior. I'm just here for guidance, for support, and we're going to start there. Right. Like, as a person who may have access or knowledge of tools that may help you once I know what you're going through. But yeah, but I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. Yeah, that's that's and we need so much more of that, you know, and I like that. Like now there's more representation. I that was my goal. That was my goal to become a therapist, a licensed therapist. And I started my education and then I didn't finish it for a lot of reasons, life or whatnot. But also it came to the point where my own trauma was just not allowing me to continue because then I started almost like unlocking so much that was happening with me that I was like, I, I'm not in a good place right now to continue. This. I need to <laughs> fix me. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> no, um, therapy definitely helped me. And I wish I had a Latina. Yeah. The healing happened in very different phases where with my white therapist, I, I learned about mental health. I learned about really normalizing, validating my emotions. Then with my other prior therapist that I was able to find a, a Latinx individual that had experience being undocumented, well, not undocumented, but being immigrant and, and working with trauma, I saw myself there. 
I felt comfortable, you know, because one thing I remember with, with my first therapist is like, well, just move out of your house and cut ties with your family. <laughs> and I'm like, bitch, I don't You're like, ah, uh, my whole support system <laughs> is, is my toxic family. <laughs> yeah. For them, it was like, it's not such a big deal, Muriel. Uh, and they didn't even call me Muriel. They call me Muriel, which is like, that's not my name. Don't call me Muriel. Muriel. You can at least try to. So, you know, learning all of that and, and understanding how I felt as a client, being not seeing as who I was. And again, that push into just adapt to this Western culture, adapt to being white, you know, get a job, move out of your house is suspected here in America. When you're get the white picket fence home and yeah. I'm like, yeah, you know, I don't have those resources. I don't have the privilege. My family does not have money. So they're not going to send me off to study yeah. abroad and pay for my schooling. You know, I have to work to pay for my school. Yeah. My parents have to work. So I see it as a positive experience because I learned, you know, and I continue with my healing process. I, I did a lot of ancestral work. When I got into EMDR, I did EMDR. It was very helpful for me. And I really connected with my ancestors, my culture. Oh, you know, wow. I'm African um, I'm very proud of part of me, you know, having black descended in my in my body. And I really embraced that, you know, yeah. where before it's like, I want to straighten my hair and I want to look really light. Because my skin is not, it's pe people don't like my skin. I have to look white, things like that. So, you know, that whole transition, it really happened through my schooling life, you know, going to getting my bachelor's, getting my master's. It really shaped me to be who I am now. So that's great. And, you know, all those things, all those things that you're saying right now, I feel like it's kind of easy. Well, to most of us, it's kind of easy to think of like, somebody who's white, right? Caucasian to see that and think that's not true. That's not a big deal. Nobody's asking you to be white, right? Like that, that I get it because they don't, they don't know they're not living it. So I can see why they would say that. But you know what really upsets me when Latinos, Latinx people, Hispanics, however you identify yourself that are light skin, colored eyes, blonde hair, deny that in our community, or they call us exagerados or dramaticos, or I never experienced that. Well, I believe, I believe you. I believe when you say you've never experienced that because it's yet another layer, right? Uh -huh. For someone with, yeah, yeah. And, and that really upsets me. And I feel like, how do we get to them when they use the excuse of like, well, I'm also Mexican, Peruvian, Salvadorian, Nicaraguan, right? Venezuelan. I'm that. And I have the same traditions and I live them and I speak the same language and I have the same beliefs, but I, that's never happened to me. And I'm like, <sighs> where do we start? <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, that's, it's just so many layers and that's why it's wonderful to have people like you coming in. Yeah. I experienced that in my country. You know, yeah. my mom is very black presenting. Uh -huh. You know, this, negra that. And, and as they talk to you, being going to school, you know, so I already carry all of that with me. Like, yeah. my culture was not acceptable. You know, my culture will not give me the space to be a doctor, be a politician, have money, because I, it, it didn't belong to me. I, I have not access to that. 
So again, you know, that transition coming here and you experience it even more. And now you're documented and you're gonna speak the language. And it is mujer, you know, because it adds more I want to pick your brain about something, and maybe this is not relevant to where you're coming from, but it's relevant in the work that maybe with working with the people that you've worked for so far. And and I have this unpopular opinion, and I pick and choose who I share it with, which now I'm sharing it with everyone else that's listening. But But this is my opinion. I feel, and for and and I know there's not like blame. Let, let me let me first of all let me process my thoughts. So I feel that a lot of the machismo, a lot of the violence that happens in our communities, a lot of like the mistreatment of children and women, the abuse, all that happens, even though the perpetrators are men, right? Mostly. I have this opinion that as women in our communities, because of how we've had to live life, even though it's been horrible for us, we still instill that in our parenting and our mothering. And therefore, we are pretty much at fault for a lot of it. I know that like when I because I've said that to some people and they're like, how dare you as a woman? And I'm like, no, I know. But you know, that idea of like the uh, the abused being almost like enamored by the abuser, you know, like like when somebody's like abusing you and they keep coming back over and over and over and somebody's like, you're an idiot. Why do you keep doing that? And you keep defending this abuser, blah, blah, blah. So I feel like even though we're women and we've had the worst of it and within our own communities, within our own societies growing up, we we're not seen half the time and we're not giving the same rights and they don't think we're good enough. And we're the ones that always have to be well behaved and you have to present yourself a certain way so that we can consider you worthy when it's time for us to mother, specifically mother or well, boys and girls, but it shows up in that way and we continue the cycle. It is not that we want to continue the cycle. Yeah. It's normalized. Yeah, yeah, because I, cause, cause I think that's what gets people and sets people off when I say that because it's almost, I think they're hearing me say, we don't mind it and we want to continue it and because we agree with it. And I don't believe we agree with it. I believe we at the root want to end it all. But it's so it's such a way of living and it's such a way of mothering and parenting that we just mimic, you know, like yes. what's been taught to us. It's what we know, it's what we learn. So yeah. stepping away from that is stepping away from your core beliefs, from your culture from your abuelita's rituals. So stepping away from my identity, I said, oh, you're not being a good Latina mother. Gee. You know, if I do things differently, you're not being a good mom. And if something happens to your child, it's your responsibility because you're doing things different. Right, you know, like the whole chancla culture. Yeah. I, yeah, I love my mother and we have a very yeah. good relationship now, but my parents were very physically abusive. Yeah. Everything was yeah you know and i became a parent it's like i don't want to do that yeah. i don't want to and i could hear well you te pegaba y mirate como estas and i'm like exactly you you're know, like oh, yes <laughs> get in my head lady get in my head. <laughs> you, don't know. you know you don't know my struggles mom like I, yeah because i really respect her and i love that relationship that we have i don't share this with you because i don't want to hurt you yeah. And I don't want to help you. 
feelings. And that's a choice that I have me as a, as a person. I made that choice. Yeah. You know, because you empower yourself. You want to tell your mom off, go for it. It's your own yeah. feeling. That's, but I choose not to do it. I choose not to share things with my mother because I don't want to break her. She yeah. already has a long history of trauma. She went her own stuff. And I'm like, it's not going to heal me yeah. in any way. To it's do better. To do anything. Because I'm already making those changes. You know? yeah. The moment I'm a parent and I'm very open with my child's identity and how they want to present themselves. And I'm very mm-hmm. acceptable that I'm doing things differently. For my child to come to me and tell me, I want to do things out of the norm or what is like the gender, how I have, I'm like, go ahead and do it. You're you. Know? you. Yeah. That's already making me different. You know, yeah. I'm doing differently because my child has enough trust in me that they can come and talk to me about those things. I know, which is the best thing, right? Like even it doesn't matter what they say, the fact that your child can come and say, I feel this way or have conversations with you that dare you not ever even, you know, even tiptoe around with your own parents. Like there's no way. And mind you, my mom is a physician in Mexico. She was a physician. So you would think of she was a little bit more open and, you know, when it came to like sexuality, not even sexuality, but just like the act of of how things work, the anatomy of the body and like, you know, how the process of having a baby is, blah, blah, blah. So I kind of had that up above other kids my age. But we never really talked about like sex and feeling confident and having sex and being confident and choosing a partner and being confident and being a woman and saying, I like sex and I want to have sex with my partner. Like you, you didn't have that, you know? And so even, even when it comes to conversations like that, when it comes to conversations about gender as well, my kids, you know, are curious and they'll ask me things. And to the best of my abilities with what I have at hand right now with the information, which is a lot, thankfully, um, you know, I'm able to have discussions with them. And and that that would not have happened before. Before I was like, this is what you are. This is your role. This is how we do things. And nobody talks about it. Nobody talks about the abuse. Nobody talks about this. And, you know, nobody talks about the perverted person in the family that nobody likes to be around, but he's your uncle and you have to respect him and, blah, you know, like, Nobody talks about that. And so I think in my own parenting journey, I feel extremely, extremely empowered when I'm able to do just as you said, to say no. And half my mom look at me like, that's why not? Or that's not how we do things. And still be like, that's not how I do things, you know? And that's very healing for me. And I feel like even though I may fail my kids in many other ways, because nobody's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna create our own set little I hope it's not really bad trauma, but you know what I mean? Like we're still gonna fail them in so many ways. Uh, but I feel like I'm definitely setting them up in a much better way that was done to me. And even in saying that, still recognizing that I love my mom. And I appreciate her. And even though some things do upset me about how things went on uh, or happened, I can understand that she just did the best she could with what she had, with what, how she was raised, with the information she had at hand. You know what I mean? Like, I, I I, can still say that. And I think part of the, and and I don't know if this is, I'd love to hear your side, but I think a lot of times people within our community 
uh, the Latin Latinx community, Hispanic community, they feel part of the struggle breaking through is to say, I don't like that you did this to me, or I don't like how my parents make me feel. And I feel my parents failed me this way. And then find the connection with, but I still love you. And I still want to have a relationship with you. You know, that's hard because we're made to feel like you have to choose one or the other. I don't know if that ever happened to you. Definitely. And and, and again, our culture is so connected with religion, you know, and if mm-hmm. you don't forgive, you know, si no perdona, si no te olvidas, then you're not truly healing. But yeah. that's not true. You don't have to forgive your perpetrator in order mm-hmm. to heal, in order to live a good life. Yeah. And, and that's something that I always normalize. Like, yeah, you feel angry, be angry. You know, express this anger here in the therapeutic room. Let's talk about it. You know, and let's find ways to release that anger in a very healthy way because I don't want you to get in trouble. Right. Um, Because we have to think about us, our communities here, the Latinx communities, especially the the first gen, being the oldest child, you have to stay home. There are these expectations where you're going to have to take care of your parents when they get older. You're going to have to do X, Y, and C. And it's like, you don't have to do that. Mm -hmm. It's your and you still will be a good person, whether you're close to your family or not. It's not going to define who you are as a human being. They should not be looking down at you because you chose to not talk to your family, not have contact with them. You have the right to build and create your own family system and what's going to work for you. And when people hear me talking about that, being a Latina myself, it's like, what are you talking about? Like, we need our community. Yes, we need our communities, but we need healthy communities. I know. We need healthy, loving communities. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So if I'm going to find a friend that its mom is going to be my mother figure, I'm going to stick to that, and that's okay. Yeah. You need to stop saying, go back to your family. You have to forgive them. You're not going to go to heaven if you don't. You're not going to... You know, you're not going to have abundance if you don't respect your parents. It's like, no, let's step away from that colonization brain that we have, the way we think, the way we parent. It's not working anymore. And it's not. Community is suffering because we're like choking each other and we're rasping for air. Make those changes, you know, and we need to start start creating these healthy communities. We need to really step away from that. And it's going to take time. You know, it's yeah. not something that's going to happen from one day to another. It's going to take time, but one people, one person making that change, it's, you will see it. Eventually, you're going to see it. You know, it's going to reflect on how they present themselves, how they talk to each other, how they care about themselves. Yeah, because now you're modeling what love and and loving yourself really is, you know, and and just to kind of like close on this subject on this topic i i've made this past year decisions of that sort where i have decided to not talk to family members and family members that almost feel by society like you should never ever Mm -hmm. stop talking to these people right because they're like the closest of the closest and but i had almost like a breakdown muriel where i was like this isn't healthy me trying to find ways to be there for this person who continues to harm me emotionally out of guilt, me doing it because, 
it's the it's the human thing to do. It's the nice thing to do, right? Like, and I keep showing up, trying my best, truly, truly trying my best. Almost like meditating before I have interactions with this person, you know, like I'm gonna, like with the intention of really being there for this person. But then getting slapped back emotionally, I said, I'm done. I'm done because I feel it in my bones. I'm gonna end up hating this person. And I don't want hate in my life. And so I, I cut off a few people and I struggled with it for a little bit, you know, because the idea of what you're not talking to this person, you're not talking to that person. As a group, we need to start just putting that message out there that if you're angry and you're done, then you're done. And the best thing, sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to cut off those people from your life. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. It actually gives you freedom. Oh, yeah. Masking. It's such a big topic. And we can have like three podcasts about masking. I know. Without wearing a mask and pretending to be okay. Yeah. You know, to accept, to conform with what we're given. Yeah. You know, we have to put that mask up and really ask for what we need and what we want and feel confident enough that we do deserve it. You know, Mm -hmm. we're going to fight for it. It's okay to speak up. It's okay to be assertive. You know, we're not going to be that angry female because we're asking for our rights, you know, because we're asking for things that we deserve, that we need. Right. No eres la dramática y la exagerada y la, la chiplona porque you're asking for the sometimes the bare minimum, which is not OK. We shouldn't be OK with just the bare minimum. But even asking for the bare minimum is seen as a negative on us. Like, oh, it's because you want too much or it's, you know. Almost like everybody in your family has put up with it. Why can't you? Like, this is what's expected of you. And these are all like sometimes not directly said to you, but they're shown and modeled to you. And it's just really time. I, I, see, I see my kids, just all of them. I would hate to see them put up with something that they learned from me that I didn't like. And I have this conversation with my mom and I say, it's because the thing is, I'm telling her as a daughter. I know you told us things. I know you guided us with words, but I'm telling you right now, that's not what we were paying attention to. We didn't even realize it. But now looking back, I'm telling you, just seeing patterns in my life, patterns of behavior, patterns of lack of boundaries, you know, not being able to say no and prioritize myself. I learned it because that's what you modeled for me, you know, and and she would get upset over me having these behaviors. And I'm like, but that's what I learned, you know, so we we do. Thankfully, we do. Yeah, that we we do have these conversations, her and I, thankfully, I know some people don't have that luxury to have these open conversations without it getting violent or aggressive with their parents. But I'm I've been lucky to have them and and she doesn't like some of them, but she's she listens. You know, she listens, and we're able to go back and forth. Having these conversations are going to be uncomfortable. You're not going to feel okay. Then I feel your stomach moving everywhere, and you just want to take off, run away, and not be part of it. I but know. Conversations, it's okay. It's needed. It's needed to have good relationships, actually. Yeah, because then you become vulnerable with each other and you learn how to navigate that and go through it and be like, look at look at us. We survived that, you know. So, yeah. But, you know, I, I love the work you're doing. We definitely I see more representation when it comes to mental health, like Maida, who is the person that connected us. She's wonderful. I love her. Um, you know, I see so much more representation 
but there's so much more work still to do, right? Yeah. So I'd love for you, I'd love to like leave this open for you to share like, what is your dream? What is it that you're working towards? What are your projects right now? How can people work with you outside of California? What 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 resources or things can they do with you? How to reach you? All that. Of course, yes. Um, I'm doing so many things right now. Um, I'm a workaholic. Something <laughs> 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 that I've been working a lot through the the toxic hustle culture. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing a lot of things. I'm going to school for my DSW. I'm working on my research right now. You know, I'm going to start doing my innovative on how to address this social problem. So I'm, I'm developing a program to do workshops, talleres, to have sex education, you know, to the uh, Spanish, uh, uh, the Latinx community to speak Spanish. And just talk to them about sex education. You know, what do you know about HIV? What do you know about sex? Have you talked to your parents or your children about sex? I'm, I'm working on that putting it all together because we're going to start next year um, developing and put it in practice. So I'm getting ready with that. So I've been saving money to get gift cards, to get snacks, um, to bring them because I want to take away from their time. Yeah. And I'm going make them have a very uncomfortable conversation with me. I know, know they need, they need a, they need a sugar rush after. So <laughs> be uh, rewarded for their time, you know? Mm -hmm. it, that's something that it, in our culture, I believe, like, oh, you lo puedo hacer gratis because, you know, I'm just grateful that I'm here and I'm learning from la señora, la doctora, whatever. I'm like, no, you know, you're coming. Your time is your time. It's your time. And it's and important. Either with, like, cafecito, pancito, a gift card. So I'm putting all that together. I'm also, uh, like I said, I work a lot with the undocumented community. So right now I'm supervising undocumented therapists through a nonprofit. Okay. Through my nonprofit that I have with uh, a colleague of mine um, that we work together, we created this nonprofit to address the gap on professionals where they want to access training, they want to access knowledge. You know, there's a big gap, sort of, again, stepping away from the Western culture as yeah. a therapist. You know, and how to really embrace your ancestors, your culture, your community, and do the work through that. You know, and how that works from what we learn at school. So I'm doing that. My nonprofit, I have my group practice. I, I have. What's the name of your nonprofit? Uh, Resilient Cosmos. Okay. It's new. We don't even have an Instagram account yet, so that's on the works. Okay. These together. Yeah. But <laughs> Email us at info at resiliencecosmo.org. Okay. And we are donations because we do a lot of um, free work for our community. We want to provide free therapy, free trainings, and things like that. Um, and then my group practice, Inside Family Counseling and Wellness Services. Um, all our clinicians are people of color. You know, unfortunately, we only serve the California community outside of California because of the licensure, you know, mm -hmm. we, we don't provide services, but I do have two different clinicians that they do coaching for mental health. And it's a little bit different in how that works because you're not doing therapy, but you are doing the psychoeducation piece, giving them information, uh, working on that uh, resilient, the assertiveness, those communication skills, empowerment. So it's a little bit different than therapy, but we are addressing a little bit of the mental health and 
providing those resources like okay now this is the time that you definitely need to go to therapy and do this work through a therapist in your estate where you're located okay so it's almost like an introduction yes okay yes, yes, yes. and then me myself i'm a supervisor clinician so i supervise associates i do consultation services for other uh, clinicians that want to have their own private practice or their group practice to help them through that route because it's very difficult and it gets really lonely so being able to mm. find your community i provide those resources as well i, I do my consulting services and i do um, immigration evaluations as when they're having a like, hardship and they they need a letter or an assessment for their immigration case you know they they usually come to me as well i okay. only take per month because I'm, I'm a full capacity yeah so now i don't have any openings until the month of january because i'm already full with, with my clients and i do pro bono as well so i i try to put myself in different things where i am getting paid for from what i'm worth uh -huh. but i think it's important to give back to my giving community. back yeah so i do two pro bono uh, immigration evaluation per year uh, I'm going to start the new application in February next year. Okay. And buy free therapy as well. Like right now I have three um, clients that are not paying for their services. They're going to be ending in February. So I'm going to be, be able to open up again for three new clients and need services that they don't have the funds to pay. They have to be undocumented, very limited resources, you know, so I will be able to serve them. If it's someone that has insurance that can't pay, um, it, that's not for you. So and I'm very specific to that, you know, uh, and again, so I'm doing a lot of things, but if you can find me on my social media, muriel.clmft, that's my Instagram account. If you send me a message, I'm very responsive. A lot of people get connected to me through my Instagram account and mi comunidad through my Facebook account. Okay. I don't know. Instagram is very like English predominant and you talk to people there, but my Facebook, it's a lot of señoras. Sí, because ya se sabe en el Facebook mejor. Se yes. lo, lo manejan mejor, sí. Yeah, and they're trying to get me to TikTok, but you know. <laughs> I don't, I don't think it's for us because I, and I'm saying us like, ya señoras más grandes, porque yo lo intenté, Muriel, yo lo intenté, pero I was like, ay, como que no tengo el, el juice que necesitan y no, no puedo, no puedo. I'm not recording myself, you know, because I, was like, you should record that, you should make it a, a big, a real, I'm like, ah, Y se know. te olvida. I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think like the younger generation is más like movida para eso, pero yo se me pasa, se me pasa y muy de vez en cuando hago upload algo que like, pero lo tengo que grabar de antemano. And then like, I'll put it up, pero no, olvídate. I also do um, speaking engagements and I okay. do it in California, outside of California. So if you want to hire me to go speak in Texas, Arizona, New York, I'm very open to do that. I, I love speaking engagement, especially with my comunidad. Yeah. Um, a lot of um, talking about mental health and religion, you know, and how both of them should coexist. You know, there shouldn't mm -hmm. be one thing and another. They're able to coexist so we can step away from the religious trauma, you know, and really be welcoming and inviting to all communities when they need that faith component. Yeah, because I think I think in nuestra comunidad o crece en uno o crece en el otro. And then a veces te pierdes 
o sientes que te pierdes because you're choosing one over the other one. And I'm like, si siempre he dicho yo, es que Dios no está peleado, si crees en Dios, ¿verdad? Que some people don't. Pero si crees en Dios, Dios no está pe peleado con la ciencia, ni con la medicina, ni con todo lo que es para ayudarte. So like, it's okay. You can, you can have this belief in God and whatever entity source you believe in and still take care of your mental health. Component, it's so important. Um, I, Dios, I believe in the higher power. I do not believe in the churches, definitely. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of us have are moving away from that. Yes. So yeah. I, I really encourage, you know, my, my community, they, they thrive with religion. They need that community connection, the spiritual connection. Um, and I always talk about how both of them definitely coexist. Yeah, because at the end of the day, it's community and it's like like-minded individuals. And that's what it's all about, right? To feel like embraced and like you belong somewhere and, and you're accepted somewhere. And it's okay if that's a spiritual com community, a religious community, but you don't have to like sacrifice everything about your well-being in order to lo be looked at as this like faithful servant or, you know, like... No, yes. you can have, you can have, you can have them both and you can thrive yeah. with both. Definitely. Yeah. Again, like those boundaries as you're navigating both of them, how and both of them coexist with each other. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of things um, that I'm doing and it's so hard for me to say no. I'm like, okay, yeah, let's do it. I know yeah. I'm struggling with that. I'm doing better though. Cause I think this whole year has been me learning to like say no and, a veces, I, just a few days ago, somebody said something and they were like, why? Literally, why? And I panicked, even though I was over text. I panicked. And I was like, why am I panicking? I'm not even looking at this person. And I literally was like, because it gives me peace of mind. Like, that's mm -hmm. it, right? And they're like, okay. And then I, I really told myself, oh my gosh, that didn't kill you. That did not kill you, you know? But it's really hard, but so important, but really hard. Yes. Hi, pues Muriel, thank you so much for this. This was really wonderful to learn a little bit about yourself and like why you're doing the work you're doing, you know, and hopefully it like continues to grow. And pues if there's anything we can do, you know, because I'll post the link so that people, if they want to donate, they can donate to the to the snacks, to the services, the therapy services, whatever, because that we, we need it so much. I think when we are together, we're better. And I think it's time that we start not just saying it, but doing it and doing for each other. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was okay. great meeting you and hearing from everything Bye. you shared. Yes, thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>